Hi, everyone. We're back for another episode of Cancer Specialist Medical Minute. Welcome back, guys. I'm Dr. Danny. Dr. Rick over here. All right. This is appropriate for my, my son who runs track. Rick, what do sprinters eat before they race? Pasta. No, nothing. They fast. <laughs> it's cute. It's Thank cute. you. It's a good one. Thank you. Your son, Ethan, is pretty fast, right? He's pretty fast, yeah. We, Brent and I were talking about how wonderful track meets are, how they make you stay for eight hours long, all day long, watching your kids sit and wait for their next race. It's bad enough being the kid, let alone the parents. Sounds yeah. awful. Yeah. So most of us are on our phones doing other things. But uh, cross country is much better because they run in groups. They're done in 10 to 15 minutes. Then you go home. That sounds So nice. I'm going to support cross country racing <laughs> from um, now on. I would too. All right. So I think we're here to talk about head and neck cancer. We are, Rick. Do you know where head and neck cancers normally start? In the head and neck? That's is that, correct. Is that another bad dad joke? I could make one. Please don't. What do you don't. think? Don't. That's not. <laughs> no, you're good. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of um, subsites of head and neck cancer, uh, depending on, you know, where anatomically the cancer starts, kind of going up, working our way from the top to the bottom. Um, you have the sinuses, um, you have the nasopharynx, which is the part of your pharyngeal axis that's behind the nasal cavity, and you have the nasal cavity, you have the oral cavity, which is the tongue, your teeth, um, you have uh, the oropharynx, which is your base of tongue, your pharyngeal wall, your tonsils, um, all the way down to the hypopharynx, which is your piriform sinuses, um, posterior cricoid area. Your larynx, which is your vocal cords, your area epiglottic folds, your epiglottis, your subglottis area. So it's Sounds a complex, Rick. It's a very anatomically um, challenging area to treat from my perspective as a radiation mm -hmm. oncologist and surgically from a ear, nose, and throat doctor's perspective. It's a very challenging area because you have a lot of very important things in a very small space. Right. And probably nowadays, you know, and we'll get into different treatments and how we approach treatment nowadays, but um, also different risk factors for developing head and neck cancer. We saw a lot more of patients coming in with really long smoking histories, and we still do to this day see head and neck cancer related to tobacco use, um, yeah. also alcohol use. And uh, But we're seeing a little bit more of a incidence in HPV-related cancers um, and all head and neck, most head and neck cancers are squamous cell carcinoma, so developing on the lining of the inner mucosal uh, layer of the uh, head and neck region, wherever it originates from. So um, have you seen, Rick, the HPV-driven cancers? And we can kind of get into that a little bit more, but, um, you know, a, a certain area that they develop more commonly? Yeah, so I... Um, ex yes, and the answer there is there's been a clear rise in um, oropharyngeal cancers, so mm -hmm. cancers of the base of the tongue and the tonsil. Most commonly, those are the ones that these days typically are HPV-driven. Um, right. uh, so HPV is human papillomavirus, um, very common virus that most Americans get at some point, usually in their childhood. And then now we know that in some cases there are certain subtypes of HPV that are higher risk for causing these cancers, typically mm -hmm. of the oropharynx, uh, the anus, and some GYN cancers. But we're here, obviously, to talk about uh, head and neck cancer today. Right. Um, there's a vaccination 
um, series now available for both young men and women mm-hmm. um, f- to reduce the risk of HPV cancer. Um, originally thought to be mostly for cervical cancer, but now right. we're obviously seeing um, it's going to hopefully reduce the <clears throat> risk of head and neck cancer going forward because, um, you know, I still think predominantly most head and neck cancers have some tobacco association. Like if you mm-hmm. look at all the subsites taken together, but the part that's clearly on the biggest rise is, is um, uh, HPV-driven oropharynx cancers. Right. And sometimes you see HPV-positive uh, cancers that develop in smokers. Sometimes you see them in non-smokers. But a lot of time, like you said, you're seeing a patient who had some either relatively recent or remote history of smoking. In the yeah, it's time. very rare we find head and neck cancer in a completely non-smoker, but it is something we, we do see occasionally. Right. Um, you know, the studies that really looked at HPV and its association with oropharynx cancers and kind of how well these patients did, strat- one of the big stratifying factors is smoking. So mm-hmm. someone who's a very, very heavy smoker has cancer in the head and neck, but it somehow is HPV-related, those actually won't do as well as someone who's never smoked or has a very minimal smoking history despite having an HPV-driven cancer. So there is some um, outcome stratification based on smoking, which is kind of interesting because you would Mm -hmm. think all HPV-driven cancers should behave the same, but they really don't. Um, But yeah, so in general, to your point, though, the biggest risk factor is oral. So you got to be careful. There's also oral tobacco. So Mm -hmm. chewing tobacco is a very big risk factor, especially for mouth cancers or oral cavity cancers. And then, of course, smoking, like so many other cancers, is uh, probably the number one risk factor. Right. And have you seen a trend for, in your field, uh, you know, treating patients with radiation therapy, a trend to uh, administering radiation therapy uh, more commonly than doing surgery in certain sites where this cancer develops? Yeah, so this is uh, definitely a, um, I wouldn't call it a hot issue in oncology, but it's a very um, often debated issue. I think, you know, historically, almost all oropharynx cancers, so again, base of tongue, which is the back of your tongue, right. and the tonsils, historically, almost all those patients received definitive radiation. One, because the outcomes were so good, and patients could tolerate it with expect, you know, expected side effects that we could manage. What's changed um, recently in the last, not was it recent as in five, six years, before surgically, in order to do a good resection, like if you were to take someone's tonsil out, the type of surgery you would have needed back before the advent of the robot would require basically ripping your jaw in half and getting in there and getting Uh, the tumor removed, which is a very morbid procedure and patient's quality of life was a disaster. So they really abandoned that. Um, But now with the robot, there's some thought of, can we get in there, remove it surgically, preserve some swallowing function? Um, Unfortunately, um, I think that when uh, you look at the data with a open and critical mind, the outcomes for surgically treated patients tend to be worse from a swallowing standpoint mm-hmm. and no better cancer outcomes. So whether there's a utility for a lot of patients with surgery in that situation, I think uh, I'm obviously a little biased. I think it's right. the answer is no. The only patients I would really push for surgery would be if they had a very, very small, very early stage tumor where you think you could remove it, preserve their swallowing function, and they wouldn't need anything after. Because the biggest issue is a lot of these patients end up going to surgery, then they end up needing radiation after almost all of them, or vast majority of them, plus or minus some chemo. And Mm -hmm. so now you've added another modality of treatment that maybe you didn't need when 
chemotherapy, radiation plus or minus chemo would have taken care yeah, of the Yeah, you job. look back at the, the long-term day or outcomes and, right. and they're the same. You right. Know. And, then, and then they have all these extra swallowing issues because, you know, part of their throat and um, swallowing apparatus has been removed. Right. Right. Yeah, in, in terms of, you know, our field, medical oncology field, we haven't uh, changed much in how we administer our chemotherapy during radiation treatment. Um, there's been uh, probably the hottest topic is do we need to give as high of dosages of chemotherapy that we gave in the past for these patients? We were giving a drug called Cisplan, which is a chemotherapy given IV, and it, we would give it at really high dosages, and we still do for some patients today, but you can imagine a lot of toxicity from that chemotherapy, hearing loss, neuropathy, um, kidney problems. So we try to, if we can, give it at a little bit of a lower dose in more of a, a frequent schedule, giving it weekly, which has a little better tolerability. But the data hasn't teased out whether that's exactly the same as the high dose. I think there's some studies that allude to that it may be, and it may just be the dose that you're giving the patient, the total dose during the radiation treatment. Um, yeah, but I, think, I was going to say, I think I was, yeah. was reading some study that showed basically if going from the 30 to 40 weekly right. kind of makes that huge difference in, makes up for, in outcomes. Yeah, yeah, that, that dosing, the total dosing, uh, I think, is, is the most important. Well, I, mean, I can just tell you from yeah. my perspective, when we treat patients together, right. they're getting weekly chemo versus the bolus chemo. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you know, as radiation doctors, we see patients weekly when they're under treatment. Right. So we kind of see them a lot, and those patients definitely – tolerate treatment much better than those yeah. who get the bolus therapy i mean it's pretty for, from and like just the anecdotal perspective of a very different experience and we would give in, in fellowship um majority of the time i was giving the bolus dosing the high dose and I, a number of times you couldn't give the third dose right. because it was so toxic mm -hmm. hearing loss you know uh, kidney problems again you, you're not gonna sacrifice um you know some organ function you know, at the, at the expense of a cure, uh, you know, in most cases. So, um, so that's why the weekly dosing, and it's good to see the data to show that you can give it weekly, less toxicity, and just about the same outcomes. Um, and with the lower dosing, the 30 milligrams that you talked about, we, I think the data kind of showed there were more um, potentially local recurrences. I, I don't remember the distant recurrence rate yeah. on that study, but um, it was a little bit uh, less effective than the bolus dosing. Um, but there really hasn't been a drug that has surpassed cisplatin as a, as a, uh, radiosensitizing chemo. So we use it in majority of cases. As an, long old, as, an oldie, but a goodie. As long as the patient can tolerate, we feel like their, their function is good enough to tolerate it. They get it. Um, and I think there, there is some data that's probably coming out more. I've seen a few smaller studies to maybe even, omit chemo in certain cases of HPV driven cancers. And there's a lot of yeah, studies so, that are ongoing. Yeah. I that. think that yeah. where this field is heading is um, like everything else in medicine, kind of trying to see, can we stratify people based on certain tumor characteristics right. and say, can we, do we need to escalate therapy or intensify therapy or can, in some cases, can we deescalate or, or give less and they do just as well and therefore have better long-term functional outcomes. So that's really, you know, there's studies looking at lowering the chemo dose or omitting chemo, lowering the radiation dose, lowering the radiation treatment field. So where mm -hmm. we treat, um, you know, we talked about surgery briefly already. So it's a, a rapidly um, evolving area. You know, I will say as of, you know, March 18th, 2022, 
There's been no phase three data yet to show that there is you can safely de-escalate. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of good, highly suggestive phase two data and some currently enrolling phase three trials. But you know, when I see a patient still in clinic today, even if they meet some of these lower risk criteria, you still have to tell them that the standard of care is kind of the historical standard because we don't yet know for sure long-term are these patients' outcomes going to be the same. So it's a very... right. It's a very, um, you know, it's a very exciting, actually, I think, place to be because I think in the next probably five years, we'll have some good data showing in certain situations what we can do to back off either from the chemo side, from the radiation side, or both mm-hmm. to, to, you know, allow these patients to hopefully have some, you know, less uh, side effects long term. Right. What do you think as far as the stereotactic radiotherapy techniques and, and giving more dose less frequently the toxicity is obviously a main concern if, if you're yeah so i mean the head, head yeah like sprt or yeah. stereotactic mm-hmm. radiation right now really mm-hmm. is only reserved for the re-irradiation setting mm-hmm. so patients who've had head and neck cancer had radiation and then you know if their cancer unfortunately recurs in a radiation field those are the times where we're really implementing those technologies where you're really just targeting the small area where the tumor has come back. Um, Because, you know, a lot of times with head and neck cancer, when this is kind of something that can be tough to explain to patients is the tumor may be in the back of your throat, but we need to treat the necks where all the lymph nodes hide because most of these head and neck cancers have a, you know, at least a 25 plus percent risk of having microscopic disease in their neck, even if their neck is completely clear on imaging and scans and and all that sort of stuff. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we end up treating a much bigger area, I think, than most people realize during treatment because we have to cover these areas because we know if we don't, they're going to have recurrences in their neck and that can be, you know, morbid and potentially fatal Mm -hmm. um, to deal with. So it's a a very interesting um, space for the radiation oncologist because there's, depending on the location of where the tumor is, we cover, you know, all these different areas or some areas we don't. And it's a very nuanced um, part of our field, you know, definitely something that's one of the more labor intensive things we do because it's such a very important real estate. There's a lot of important structures there. So how we design the radiation plan, the head and neck is definitely one of our, I would say one of our sites that requires the most um, insight and thought and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, technical know-how to do appropriately does yeah a lot of a lot of precision and yeah planning and, and i think you know the other thing is that like you said earlier mm-hmm. most of these cancers are treated with chemotherapy and radiation or radiation alone um cancers in the mouth so the teeth or the tongue or the gums mm-hmm. those cancers are managed surgically so surgery is actually the most important part of mm-hmm. those um, cancers usually followed by radiation plus or minus chemo but i just want to let the listeners know that, that that's kind of the big One of the big deviations there is oral cavity cancers is a surgical disease, whereas the vast majority of other head and neck cancers are not. There are some other rare types of sinus cancers and things that are surgically managed, but for the most part, it's a, it's not really a surgical, um, most of these are not primarily managed surgically, um, other than, and then also just very advanced larynx cancers can be, or should be managed with surgery up front. Mm Mm-hmm. Viewers may ask, do, are we using immunotherapy during, you know, head and neck cancer treatment, chemo and radiation? 
I'm sure there's a trial. I can't think of what trial they they have investigating that, but I know you know for for lung cancer and a few different cancers, we're looking at it in the preoperative setting, throwing in an immunotherapy drug in with chemo, and sometimes with radiation. And so I'm sure there is a protocol out there. Yeah, I think there's uh, I think there's like phase one or phase two data for concurrent concurrent chemo immuno RT. Right. I, I actually don't think what I saw was that the outcomes were, unfortunately were not improved. Any and better. of course, yeah. then you got the added toxicity benefit. But I think in the metastatic setting, there's in some the, good data. In the metastatic setting, um, depending on the pdl one status, which is the biomarker we kind of use to see if uh, patients are more likely to respond to immunotherapy, that you can use it in combination with chemotherapy or even on its own, depending on uh, that pdl one expression, which is, again, something we measure on the tumor cells. So, um, But yeah, and anywhere outside the metastatic setting for head and neck cancer, we're not really using immunotherapy. Um, it would be interesting to look at whether some of the stage four cases, which patients with bilateral neck lymph node uh, involvement and, and pretty big tumors, if, if maybe there's some utility in using immunotherapy in the more locally advanced setting, but I don't know of any data right now. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think in my opinion, if the one area where I think it might help would be in, pa in the disease sites where you worry more about distant disease popping up than yeah. local regional recurrence. You know, the vast majority of head and neck cancers are, it's a local regional problem. Mm -hmm. um, but there are certain types, HPV specifically, that like to go to the lungs and other areas. So maybe those are the ones that, mm -hmm. you know, you can somehow, we can stratify and figure out who may benefit from right. immuno or some other escalated systemic therapy. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's a definitely an interesting and it doesn't field. tend to be a cancer that really has other uh, targets for for right. medical oncologists. Like we're not seeing activating mutations like we are in the lung. You know, squamous cell carcinomas generally don't have as many activating mutations that you can target with a, a pill like sometimes we can with different lung cancers. So um, a little frustrating that we can't have more precision medicine for head and neck cancers. But Yeah, I think the one of the only sites I can think of is the nasopharynx. You know, hmm. there is data looking at... Um, nasopharynx has another virus associated with it, the EBV or Epstein-Barr mm -hmm. virus. And so that one, there's some data showing you can measure their levels of the viral titers pre-treatment, post-treatment. And then, you know, folks who have a good response from initial chemo radiation may not benefit from any chemo on the back end versus those that still have residual titers may benefit from chemo on the back end. So that's about all I can think <laughs> of in terms of sort of maybe, you yeah. know, more targeted systemic treatments you know or at least targeting the patient the appropriate yeah. patient to do it in um so i think it's yeah. probably an unmet need and hopefully we can you yeah. know research can address that going forward i know with with ebv and sometimes with even lymphomas that are EB, ebv driven you you get rid of the ebv or the the b cells that it's hiding in you know that the disease gets better you know with lymphomas so i'm sure there's some data out there that maybe suggests that like you know, getting rid of your, where the uh, EBV virus, the virus is making a home in, in the immune cells, getting rid of those immune cells and thus the, the stimulus for cancer development, you know, mm -hmm. probably helps. Um, but I don't know of the data offhand for that. Yeah, no. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think we touched, I don't think we went into too much detail on it in our screening episode, but, you know, right. one of the questions people always have is, well, can, is there screening for this? Should I get scans? And, and the answer really, the, the main thing is seeing your dentist. So, yeah. um, you know, it's an under, 
under talked about area, but um, you know, your dental practitioners, when you go in for your twice a year, just regular dental visit should be doing an oral cavity tumor screening where they look under your tongue they look in the sides of your mouth on your gums, obviously roof mm-hmm. of your mouth. Um, so that's one step that, you know, encourage you, you should go see your dentist because you should have good dental care because it's important for other health aspects in your body. But mm-hmm. in the cancer realm, you know, it can be a, a detection method for right. oral cavity cancer. Um, outside of that, you know, there's really not much of a role for routine screening, but certainly if a patient developed certain symptoms, um, mm-hmm. So chronic like nasal congestion that didn't respond to antibiotics and other treatments and it was persistent and you didn't know why, those are the patients, you know, you may see it into an ENT doctor or do a scan on. Mm -hmm. Unexplained hoarseness that's persistent, that doesn't have any other explanation. Trouble swallowing that doesn't really have any other explanation and that's persistent. Um, You know, what other things would you tell a patient if they had, would you be worried and yeah. Maybe have them see an ENT doctor. You know, and and again, if you if you're seeing a dentist, you think uh, the dentist would pick up on a sore in the mouth that doesn't heal. You know, and, and it's not just a standard canker sore that lasts a week or two, but something that doesn't heal and um, is is present for longer periods of time. You think about uh, any kind of bleeding if if you're at all coughing up blood. You know, that could be. It doesn't mean it's coming from your lungs. Sometimes it's coming from the back of your throat. Um, and so that that's definitely an, an abnormal symptom that someone should get investigated right away. Um, you know, any kind of discoloration, I think, uh, in the mouth, if they're doing brushing their teeth or examining around their teeth and they see discoloration in the gums, you know, worthwhile getting checked out. Um, and, and just if they feel a lump that, that is abnormal, you know, ask your doctor or your dentist about it. So I think those are the main things um, I would think about. Um, you know, there are some rare circumstances with, like you mentioned, nasopharyngeal cancer. You know, if you, if you again have sinus pressure or even headaches that keep recurring and you don't know why, um, uh, like you said, congestion. Um, trying to think of the other presentations I've seen. I, I think a majority of them have yeah. been ear pain is a common one. Um, you, can get pain, re- yeah. you can get referred mm-hmm. ear pain from some of these tumors depending right. on the location. Um, so that's something that you know. Um, if you're vo- we talk about hoarseness, but there's also voice changes that can sometimes indicate there could be something going on. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, um, or, or certainly a, a, you may have a lump in your neck. Um, you know, sometimes, especially these HPV cancers, sometimes they present more with neck lymph nodes. So mm-hmm. the come, patient comes in with a neck mass, they don't even know there's anything wrong with their tonsil because they can have a very small primary, but very impressive adenopathy. So it's. Right. I think we've had a case or two like that yeah, where so it just a, presents with a lymph node enlargement. Those, those cases yeah. is pretty common that a patient comes in just with a, a neck lump, mm-hmm. and, that, and then they end up, you know, finding out it's coming from the tonsil. Right. Thanks so much for coming back and joining us for another episode of Medical Minute. If you have any suggestions on things we should talk about, questions you'd like answered, or you just want to say hi, please email us at medicalminute at csnf.us. That was perfect, Rick. Thank you. And make sure you follow us on social media. Search Cancer Specialists of North Florida on Facebook and underscore CSNF on Twitter and Instagram. And as always, we appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time. And we hope you learned something today. And remember, when it comes to your health, stay informed. Ask questions. And and tune tune in in next time. time. Nice.